There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen. He feasted sumptuously every day, and at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The man, the rich man, was in his garage, and he was admiring all of his many things. Sometimes he thought it was all a little bit beyond the pale, a little too extravagant, the four cars, the jet skis, now the boat. But he had to admit to himself it was fun to have so many toys to play with. And so it came to pass one day that he was standing in his garage, daydreaming about expanding the already expanded garage, when he looked out the window and he saw his tormentor, Larry. There he was, Larry, standing on the edge of the rich man's property, day after day, walking back and forth on the grass. The grass of the rich man paid a small fortune to stay the same length and same, the sh- same shade of green throughout the year. And there was Larry, with his little cardboard cutout sign, asking for whatever anyone could spare. And day after day, people would roll down the windows in their cars. They'd pass Larry a dollar or two. They'd give him a half-eaten banana. And it was driving the rich man crazy. He couldn't stand the sight of Larry on the edge of his lawn. So he did everything he could, everything he could think of to rid himself of the parasite named Larry. He called the police, but they kindly and politely responded that actually the edge of the lawn belonged to the city, uh, that it was public property and there was nothing they could do about Larry. So the rich man proposed a new city ordinance that would ban panhandlers from asking for assistance even on public property, but there were too many do-gooders that rallied against him. The rich man even tried blasting extremely loud and annoying music through his expensive stereo system to try to drive Larry away, but nothing worked. Day after day, week after week, month after month, Larry was there and it was driving the rich man crazy. That was until one day. One day the rich man woke up, began his normal routine, looked out the window, and Larry was gone. And the rich man thought it might be a little too good. He couldn't believe that his good fortune would fall in his lap like this. And he went to the paper and he flipped to the obituaries. And there he saw Larry's picture. He saw Larry's name. And he rejoiced. His problem was finally over. Larry was gone. He, like Tom Cruise in Risky Business, he started sliding around on his marble floors in his socks. He started dancing all around his kitchen with his gourmet cup of coffee, and he even ran down the hallway to the in-home movie theater to share the good news with his wife. But right before he rounded the edge of the corner, he felt a pain in his chest, heart attack, dead, right there on his marble floors in his McMansion. Sometime later, the rich man realized that he was in hell. The flames of fire were lapping all around him. There was nothing he could do to evade the pain. And yet over the edge of the flame, if he squinted his eyes just enough, he could see, of all people, Larry. And next to Larry, there seemed to be this other figure that looked kind of like an angel. And so the the rich man began waving his arm. Hey, 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 could you do me a favor? Could you send Larry over on my side with a Campari on the rocks? It is getting really hot and I could use a little relief. The angel says, no. You had good things your whole life. Larry here, he had nothing. Here he is comforted. You are in agony. Also notice, we can't come to you, and neither can you come over to us. So the rich man got a little louder. Okay, well, the least you could do is send Larry to my brothers, warn them so they don't wind up down here like me. And the angel said, no. 
They have all the scriptures. They need only trust what they can read there. And the rich man was getting frantic. He said, excuse me, I, I don't think you're listening, and I don't think you understand. That's not enough. They need someone to return to them from the dead for them to believe. And the angel said, no. If they don't already trust, then they won't be convinced even if someone comes back to them from the dead. Here endeth the parable. Thank you very much, Jesus, for this one, the second hardest parable that he tells. I can't wait to talk to you about this story today. The wealthy and the powerful in this life will burn forever in torment and hell. Those who are weak and poor in this life will be comforted in the beyond. Therefore, do what you can while you can. Give away all your wealth. And because we are a church that cares and we want to help you help yourselves, I would like the ushers to now come forward and to receive God's people's gifts. And I'd like the offering plates to be very heavy today. Kidding, but I'm not. You know, plenty of pastors have stood up in front of congregations just like this one and, and said something very similar to what I just said, made the same sort of proclamation, pitch plea. I've even done it a couple times. We'll take the story of Lazarus and the rich man and we'll dangle it over our dozing congregation's heads on a Sunday morning and we'll do it in order to, to fill up the offering plates just a little bit more than they were last week. You know why we do it? Because it works. Because guilt works. But you know what works better than guilt? Fear. And yet, in this life, is there anything we are more afraid of than the question of money and how much of it we have and whether or not it is enough? You know, for as much as we might like the idea that money is not something that ever comes up in church, it is a great challenge to read through the whole of the gospel and not come away with the thought that maybe our relationship to money is at the heart of what it means to be a disciple or to be a little more on the nose about it. I'm not so sure that you can be rich and a Christian at the same time. But don't take my word for it. Old JC has this to say. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. The rich young ruler asks the Lord, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? And he says, you have to sell all of your possessions. Not the ones you don't like. Not Marie Kondo. No, you've got to sell all your possessions and give the proceeds to the poor. Jesus is addressing the crowds one day. And he says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Where your money is, there your heart is also. And yet this parable, this story of the rich man and Lazarus, it is about more than just money alone. Each and every one of us in this room have come of age in a world in which those with the largest bank accounts are considered first, best, powerful, and the ones we should envy. And those who have little to no wealth are tossed aside, they are belittled, they are used as a warning to everyone else. Don't be like them. You see, we use money to determine worth more than money. This isn't just a parable about wealth. It's also a parable about identity and power. If you're rich, you're the best. And if you're poor, you're not. Which, oddly enough, runs completely counter to the gospel. You know, because Jesus says, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And yet that hasn't stopped us, that is Christians, from leaving behind that particular proclamation altogether. We elevate the wealthy constantly. We worship the wealthy. We are far more inclined to, uh, to elect a wealthy politician than a poor one. We devour books all the time by supposedly self-made millionaires because we want the exact same thing. And we fear offending those with more money than us than we do those who have the same amount we do. 
And here's the real kicker behind it all. For as much as we might be fascinated, obsessed, and even worship those with lots of money, they haven't really done a lot of good with it. I mean, think about it. If the world could have been fixed by good living and good earning, then Bill Gates would have fixed everything by now. If wealth could have fixed everything, Jeff Bezos would have fixed everything. Have you watched the news recently? Things are not as they ought to be. And yet we have more wealth than we've ever had before. Why is that? Consider another example, maybe one that rings a little too close to home for some of you, including me. In most bookstores, if you go to a bookstore, you know what the largest section is? It's the self-help section, which is very troubling and very ironic because if self-help books worked, we wouldn't have self-help books anymore. Instead of a world better off because of the wealthy, the wealthy achieve and maintain their wealth on the backs of the last, the least, the lost, the little, and the dead. In the name of progress, or at the very least, in the, in the name of making things better, the wealthy get wealthy and stay wealthy by doing things like shunning the sick, locking the poor in poverty, segregating according to skin tone, on and on. And now, you and I, we are stuck in a world in which the rich just keep getting richer and the poor keep getting poorer. Did you, when Judy was reading, did you know how Jesus starts his story? He says, there was a rich man who dressed well and had all the good food, and there was a poor man covered with wounds who yearned to eat even what the rich man had in his trash can. Jesus told that story 2,000 years ago, and it just as easily could have been told about today, about Roanoke, Virginia. It's a story about power and wealth and identity. It's also a story about hell. Every once in a while, someone will come by and they say, Pastor Taylor, do you believe in hell? Get this question. I love this question. You know why? Because when people say, do you believe in hell? I say, believe in it. I've seen it. I've seen it. Jesus tells this story and he makes it such that hell is not just where God sends people. Hell is us holding on to our freely chosen and our false identities. Hell is thinking that what we've earned says more about us than anything else in the world. Or, put another way, we spend so much time in this life worrying about whether we'll go to hell or heaven when we die that we often lose sight of how many people are living in hell on earth right now and that we can actually do something about it. In the parable, the rich man finds himself in hell. It says he's tormented. But notice, when the rich man speaks, the very first thing he says, he doesn't say, I'd like to leave, please. He doesn't say, I'm sorry. The first thing he says is, I'd like Lazarus to come over here and make this a little bit easier for me, which means, I don't know if you notice this, he knows his name. How does the rich man know his name? I mean, it makes it all the worse. Lazarus is not just some nameless, faceless beggar sitting on a property. He is known by his name. And yet, the rich man doesn't think that Lazarus is worth his time or his wealth. He says, hey, send him over with some water so I can have relief. The rich man still treats Lazarus like an object, like a means to a better life, whatever is left of his. He wants to be served by the poor man. Even among the fires of hell, the rich man can't see past his own worked-up version of himself. He still believes that he is better than Lazarus. And he never even comes to his senses. He never repents. 
He never asks how to get out. The first thing he does is he expresses concern for his brothers. He's so stuck with his obsession with his own wealth that he can't imagine anything would ever change for him. In short, he refuses to die to the backward notion of how things work, at least how they work according to the Lord. Because in the kingdom of God, the gospel can only make alive those whom the law has killed. When I say the law, I mean the little L laws in our life. All those little L laws that tell us who we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to do, how much we're supposed to earn. It's only when we can die to those little laws, the demands of what the world tells us we have to be, can the gospel set us free. This is a scary story that Jesus tells. And in my eyes, it's the second hardest one that he tells. Sometimes it's good to be scared by God. But in this story, what's most terrifying, it's not the flames or the fire, it's the way that Jesus ends the story. He ends it with a warning that we can believe more in the worth of material things than we can believe in what God finds worth in. Jesus suggests through the parable that we can become so caught up in ourselves, in the rat race of life, in our possessions, our bank accounts, even something like our social media presence, that not even a message from someone who died and rose again can get us to change. But Jesus came to raise the dead, not to reward the rewardable or improve the improvable or correct the correctable. Jesus came to be the resurrection and the life for those who need all the help they can get, people like us. I think it's important to note that at the very beginning of the story, Jesus doesn't have some disclaimer and say, this is exactly what will happen to every rich person and this is exactly what will happen to every poor person. He doesn't command the listeners to go and be like Lazarus at the end of the story. This isn't a story about what happens to us after we die. It's a story about life right now. Oddly enough, and it seems that Jesus is saying, it is possible to be wealthy and a Christian at the same time. However, if the pursuit of power, the accumulation of more wealth is more important more constitutive of how we see ourselves, of how we understand who we are, if that's more important than the free gift of God's love and grace in Jesus Christ, then our lives are going to be miserable. Because there will always be more that we can earn. There will always be more that we can do, and enough will never, ever be enough. You know what that sounds like? It sounds like hell. And yet, even in this parable, there's good news. The good news is that no matter what the world tells us that it takes to win, no matter what we think we need to do to get God to love us or forgive us or save us, it's already done. Pay attention to the third verse of the hymn we will sing shortly. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. That is the gospel. We have been set free now. All your sins, the ones in the past, the ones that you were daydreaming of during the silence that we had during the Acts prayer, the sins you haven't even thought up of yet, they're nailed to the cross. They don't define you and me anymore. The, o- the only one who can tell us who we are is Jesus. And Jesus says, You're forgiven. We can live wild and reckless lives even for other people right now because of Jesus' wild and reckless life for us. The only thing we have to do is trust that it's true and everything can change. 
However, I won't be mad if you put extra money in the offering plate this week. And yet the strange and bewildering proclamation of the gospel is that you can put your whole life savings in that plate and God will not love you any more or any less. God loves you even the worst parts of you. The good news really is good news. It's so good, though, that it can actually change us to be better for other people. And so I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.